When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. My body, my choice! My body, my This is Intercepted. I'm Laura Flynn, one of the producers. Today, we bring you a special episode in response to the U.S. Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade. In the 5-4 vote, the justices overturned the landmark 1973 ruling that guaranteed a woman's right to abortion, sending the issue back to the states to set their own policies. This is the first time The Supreme Court has ever granted a constitutional right, which it did so when Roe was decided in 1973, and then took it away, a popular right that was widely recognized. Of the 13 trigger law states, abortion is now illegal, with a few exceptions in at least five of them following today's ruling, including Missouri, Oklahoma, and Arkansas. First, The Intercept's Washington editor, Nausicaa Runner, takes us to the protests in front of SCOTUS that formed after the radical decision to end the right to abortion. I'm standing here in front of SCOTUS. It's been a little over two hours, maybe almost three hours, since the decision to overturn Roe v. Wade um, came out, and, um, and also Planned Parenthood v. Casey, and you can see... There's probably like three or four hundred people here. There's counter protesters too. And people are really worked up. Hands up! Hands up! Hands up! Hands up! Hands up! Hands up! large barricades in front of SCOTUS like they're doing the kind of double barricade where there's a fence um, you know that's hip height and then there's a line of police and like the large barricades that we saw um, around the Capitol following January 6th There's definitely, like, a theme in the speeches about not waiting on the electoral process. 
not waiting for November. I've heard a few different Rise Up people say, we're not waiting for November. We need to show our power now, which I think reflects a realistic sense of what the electoral process is going to be able to do for people in the next few years. Nobody seems to believe the solution is electoral. This is all happening under a democratic trifecta, and, you know, obviously trifecta does not include the court. But there's such a sense of failure about how much, you know, in a few days, the Supreme Court has changed all of our lives by, like, not allowing abortion, um, the right to an abortion, and, and taking that right away and... I think it's 26 states, and also with the um, the the gun decision, where um, you know conceal and carry is now going to be legal in New York. These are real physical threats to people's bodies, and it, and the Supreme Court has managed to do a lot to change people's lives in just a couple of days, whereas Congress can't seem to get it together to do anything. So it's just a a really striking highlight to me of the complete failure of the Democrats, even though this is coming from Republicans. I mean, I think it's both. That's That's my final thought. That was The Intercept's Washington editor, Nausicaa Runner. Now we turn to a live stream conversation The Intercept hosted on Friday, discussing what can be done to minimize the impact on the most vulnerable people. The Intercept's Natasha Leonard talks with Professor Rachel Rabouchet, interim dean of Temple Law School and author of a new report titled The New Abortion Battleground which looks at the legal issues that will arise across state borders and between states and the federal government. She's also joined by Danny McLean, a Puffin Fellow at Tight Media Center and the author of We Live for the We, The Political Power of Black Motherhood, and Haley McMahon, an abortion access researcher and doctoral student at Emory University. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. In the streets! 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 Keep 
Hi, uh, thank you for joining. I'm Natasha Leonard and I'm a columnist for The Intercept. Um, thanks again for joining on this grimly historic day. Those clips you just saw were, of course, outside uh, SCOTUS this morning, sent in by my colleague, Norsika Renner. So, as many of you probably know, the far-right Supreme Court has overturned Roe v. Roe v. Wade today in a 6-3 decision, decimating the constitutional right to abortion. In 22 states with trigger laws ready, total or near-total abortion bans on abortion, abortion bans from even the earliest stages of pregnancy, will go into effect. Four more states have uh, similar laws on the books uh, awaiting to go into effect too. Those on the front lines of the fight for reproductive justice and bodily autonomy have long known this day was coming. It was death by a thousand cuts and today the deadly blow, but no less sickening for being expected. Without the right to end an unwanted pregnancy, Many millions more will, as the three liberal judges wrote in their dissent today, at the least incur the cost of losing control of their lives. We must, of course, remember that in dozens of red states, a post-Roe reality is already the status quo, without access to clinics, extreme restrictions already in place, bans that were up until now unconstitutional, but nonetheless already in effect. Abortion providers and advocates and experts have been navigating this harsh terrain for years, and we are lucky to be able to hear from some of them with us here today. The end of Roe will aggressively worsen an already abysmal state of affairs for women and pregnant people, particularly poor black women. The Dobbs decision is no less than a fascist victory. Neither allegedly settled constitutional law nor Democrats in power have protected our essential rights. So here we are. How can we move forward in this new legal reality? Uh, I'm very, very grateful on this incredibly stressful day for everyone here, I imagine, uh, to be joined by Professor Rachel Reboucher. McLean, who is Puffin Fellow with the Type Media Center and author of We Live for the We, The Political Power of Black Motherhood. And finally, we are joined by Haley McMahon, uh, abortion access researcher, advocate and doctoral student at Emory, Emory University. Welcome everyone on this difficult day. Thank you again. So I do want to just start uh, with a broad question to, to anyone who wants to answer um, before I direct some more specific questions at each of you relating to your various expertise, I wanted to see if you had any general comments uh, in response to today's decision. If it's easier if I prompt, um, and then uh, we can also move on to some of the more specific questions for you, Rachel, because I know you have to leave us uh, a little bit sooner than the end of the show. Um, do you have any comments about the actual specific content of the decision itself and the wording and some of the, I mean, a lot of it was hewed pretty closely to the leaked uh, opinion that we saw in June, but was anything, uh, did anything stand out to you today? It, it did. It, it tracked pretty closely the um, leaked draft. And I guess what stood out for me is that it tracked pretty closely the leaked draft in that, uh, you know, there were 
elements of that draft that are dicta. Um, the comments about the nature of an equal protection challenge as a basis for abortion rights. That's not, it's not, that's not part of the holding, but it, um, so it, it's, it's it, in that sense dicta, but that was part of the draft and it, it stays part of the majority opinion. Um, and so I, I, I thought that potentially we could have seen a draft with the same conclusion, uh, with the same holding, but uh, pared down uh, and uh, without as much dicta about uh, the nature of uh, pregnancy and the role of equal protection. Uh, but but we that is not the draft that uh, was that is not the majority opinion that the court handed down today. Right, right, absolutely, and um, yes, and some very uh, threatening words about future future rights that could also be uh, uh, at stake, uh, given the establishment of this uh, decision and opinion. Um, very worrying. Uh, Danny and Haley, did you have any general comments uh, you wanted to add about, you know, the, this long expected but nonetheless uh, horrifying result today? I think even though the the draft opinion had leaked and people had a sense that this was coming, the just shock that and the the pain um, and the fear that um, have been real for all of for many of us today. Um, I, I just want to lift that up because I think you can kind of know what's coming intellectually, um, and then there's the difference of having it land. And so I've just been talking to folks today who are sitting with that. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I agree. And, and, uh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, go ahead, Haley. I was going to ask the same to you, yeah. Yeah, I was just going to um, say something similar and reiterate what you said um, before, that we have really known this was coming for years and years and years, and, you know, reproductive justice organ organizations specifically have been sort of raising this alarm for years and years, because just like you said, the South and the Midwest as well has been post-Roe for, for quite a while. So I think not surprised, but shocked is definitely it. I think, you know, we have known it's coming a lot of, there have been a lot of preparations for this, but it's a different kind of real when you start getting texts from people who have their appointments canceled. That's a different right. kind of that's a different kind of real than knowing than counting down the days to when it happens. So I agree with Danny. I think, I think it's really a different feeling, although not surprising. Right. Absolutely. And I've definitely seen um, a number of advocates on Twitter, and this is crucial advise that people with abortion appointments who understand themselves to be in States with trigger laws, actually make sure that, uh, you know, not every trigger trigger state, trigger law state, uh, has these laws coming in immediate effect. Some of them are in 30 days. So, you know, I, I also, I echo the messages uh, along those lines that, you know, you might still be able to get your abortion if it's booked for the next 30 days, depending on your state. Don't presume uh, all abortions are immediately canceled uh, if you're in a trigger law state. Um, back to you, Rachel, and specifically uh, wanted to touch upon the work you've done in the co-authored paper in Columbia, in the Columbia Law Review, which uh, is, is recent and anticipated the fall of Roe, um, and specifically outlined what the upcoming interstate 
legal battles could look like. So one thing that's uh, been sort of uh, part of the course for conservatives to, to claim was that, okay, ending Roe doesn't actually make uh, abortion illegal. It just makes things simpler because states can decide how they want to regulate it. And they say that it kind of de- uh, simplifies what they claim is a, a quagmire um, judicially. Your paper shows that that really couldn't be further from the truth and that this this new legal terrain is full of potential bifurcations and interstate jurisdictional tensions. Can you unpack that a little bit? Because actually I think it's wildly undercovered and I'm really fascinated. Well, thank you. Uh, so I think that Greer Donnelly, who's at Pitt, and David Cohen, who's at Drexel, um, are my co-authors and what we wanted to do was try to map the legal terrain and what that looks like up against abortion access. And so we were very, um, we, we, we concentrated on where we thought those interstate and interjurisdictional conflicts would occur. And some of the things that we talk about are uh, some of the things that are starting to happen and that, that states have been thinking about already, even in anticipation of Dobbs. Uh, the Missouri amendment that would punish providers who provide or seek to punish providers civilly who provide abortions to Missouri residents, even if they're outside of Missouri state lines. Um, We argue that uh, one of the goals of the anti-abortion movement is not just to ban abortion within 26 states, the number of states who uh, it have said that have made their intention to ban almost all abortion after uh, Roe v. Wade is overturned, um, but across the country. And so we expect there to be conflicts between states uh, that want to punish providers and potentially patients, uh, people who help patients, uh, even inside and outside their uh, state lines. Uh, And then the states like Connecticut and New York bills that are uh, pending in Massachusetts, California, other places that want to protect the providers who are providing abortions to people traveling in state to their providers who are providing telehealth uh, care for uh, abortion services uh, that want to uh, help provide help patients uh, with funding, with, with lodging, with other material support. Um, So the, the, with Roe returning back to the States, there will be an increasingly complicated legal landscape, uh, not to mention the states that aren't going to rush to ban abortion, uh, but aren't going to repeal the restrictions that are already on their books. So there will be a lot of legal hybridity. Um, we also think that there will be conflicts between the states that seek to prohibit abortion as a crime or as, uh, with civil penalties or both, um, and the federal government. Uh, which has stated its opposition to this ruling, has stated its support for reproductive rights. It's not clear what the federal government will do, but there are things they can do. Um, And one source of potential conflict is the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration's regulation of medication abortion. Uh, The FDA sets drug policies to ensure safety and efficacy. Uh, It's one of its... uh, purposes is to have is to set out a uniform uh um uniform policies around uh uh drug safety 
and and states will, as they ban abortion, ban medication abortion too, in contradiction to the FDA's determination. So, though it's an untested argument in this arena, uh, there's a potential conflict between that FDA policy and state law, um, and it's a question of whether or not FDA policy, for instance, could preempt uh, state law. Um, so there, there, I think Justice Alito's argument that one reason to overturn Roe and Casey, just as you said, is is be- one reason is because those cases set unworkable standards. They created excessive litigation. They resulted in conflict. Um, the, the tests were unclear and hard to apply. I I think that the land, the what we're looking at in the next few months, uh, and 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 how the years to come is is even more complicated uh, in that respect. Um, and is there? I mean, given that the highest court in the land is in fact this very Supreme Court, um, nonetheless, are there sort of sites of opportunity and gray areas and? places that, that those of us who want to fight hard for reproductive justice can use these potential ten- tensions, conflicts, um, unprecedented interstate confusions and battles to, in fact, ensure that abortions are accessed? I think that, you know, the, the I think that one of the reasons that you see the Biden administration now uh, suggesting that there are tools that the federal government have to help uh, meet the um, to, to address what's going to happen next as people travel for abortion, as there's confusion, as there's misinformation. Uh, that's in response to calls that uh, that the federal government take a more proactive role in thinking about how to address these conflicts that are inevitable after Dobbs. Um, I think that there's work to be done in states that, um, if this is even the right phrase to use, abortion ambivalent, uh, that the, the, those, the, the handful of states that aren't necessarily going to proactively uh, legislate like New York, but um, could be convinced to repeal restrictions in light of the consequences that we're going to see in the next few months for for people seeking care, uh, for providers offering care. Um, and then, of course, there is the work that is happening in places like New York and California um, in, in thinking about how uh, what material support people need as they navigate this new landscape. Absolutely. Um, I understand that you have to head off a little uh, sort of now-ish. So uh, I want to say thank you so much for um, the work you're doing and joining us. Um, Really, really clarifying and important. And uh, yes, I suppose we will be watching closely. Um, I'm going to turn to you now, Danny, if that's that's all right. and then ask you a couple of questions, and then um, then I will turn to you, Haley. But uh, Danny, you specifically cover the intersection of reproductive and racial justice, uh, and uh, you know it's so crucially uh, insist that these struggles cannot be disentangled. Can you tell us a little bit about how abortion restrictions and bans function, not just as patriarchal violences, which is how they're so regularly referred to, but racist violences too? Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, I think what we've long seen is 
that these um, efforts to restrict access to abortion disproportionately affect um, low-income people, yes, but um, black and brown people uh, more specifically. And, you know, um, there was a rally in D.C. this past weekend, the Black Bodies for Black Power rally, that brought uh, around a thousand people to DC, um, on, you know, over Juneteenth weekend. It was organized by two reproductive justice organizations, Sister Song and um, Black Feminist Future. And I think their desire was to uh, kind of rally the bases, knowing that uh, Roe was on the brink of falling. You know, I think, as you point out, uh, the loss of the constitutional right, uh, you know, constitutionally protected right to an abortion um, that that's happened today, it does bring something new, right? But for a lot of low-income people, people of color, uh, abortion has been out of reach um, for already f- for quite some time. And I think um, what I saw in, in, I wasn't able to travel to DC for this rally, but what I gained from watching it online was uh, a real effort to kind of, um, get people energized and keep people from feeling hopeless in the face of um, this, this ruling, you know, at that rally um, I heard a lot of what I've heard from reproductive justice organizers um, in the past. And just really quickly, I just want to kind of say something because I've noticed that the phrase reproductive justice is being used more and more um, as kind of a blanket phrase that that there's been kind of a loss of a distinction between reproductive rights and reproductive justice. And people are mm. using reproductive justice to mean kind of like generally the fight to, um, you know, protect and, and maintain access to um, reproductive health services. And my understanding and, and the distinction that was made to me when I, when I started this beat about a decade ago was that, um, you know, reproductive justice uh, advocates and organizers, you know, are, are pushing a movement that was, created uh, in the early to mid 90s. It was led by black people, black women, um, people of color. uh, And it really has advanced this idea, the right to have a child, the right to not have a child, and the right to parent the children that we have in in safe and healthy conditions. Um, Really, you know, saying that this is not just about the right to have access to abortion and contraception, but tying those fights to larger um, fights for um, self-determination and family building. And so what I saw, uh, what I'm hearing from the organizers who I'm talking to today uh, is, you know, this desire to, um, to, you know, keep fighting, you know, and a lot of what I heard was, you know, our freedom comes from movement, not courts. Um, we're going mm-hmm. to do what's just and right. People who need abortions will get abortions. Um, organizers saying, you know, these times require that we don't just do what what's legal. We have to do what's moral. Um, we can't depend on courts or government to protect us. And so, what I'm what I'm sensing is, uh, you know, a real desire and a real commitment uh, to act up and to say that we are going to, you know, move people around the country as needed. Uh, particularly looking at these Midwestern and Southern states where um, these trigger laws are on the books, and um, you know or the restrictions have already been in place so that, you know, it's difficult to access an abortion, if not impossible. We have to figure out how to move people to the states where it, where it is legal. Um, 
So that's what I'm sensing. I'm sensing a real, you know, uh, acknowledgement that access has been the question, even, you know, prior to the, the right not being available to us. Um, access has been the, the question for a lot of uh, particularly black and brown people in this country, low income people. And that, um, you know, that the fight um, to um, get people what they need, regardless of what the law allows, is um, really the focus. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you so much. Um, and uh, just a quick follow up question for that, because I, you've also done really important work um, insisting that, that you know, the kind of more like white establishment feminist uh, movements or institutions, Planned Parenthood as a focal point, need to reckon with the profoundly eugenicist and racist history of their um, organizations and the ideologies that underpin that. Um, do you feel that, uh, you know, in a moment of reckoning like this, also, uh, you know, with the powerful memories of the George Floyd uprisings close in our mind, that we would like that we will, you know, be able to look to uh, the on the ground grassroots movements who are really doing this work and not fall back onto the kind of major establishment groups that maybe aren't thinking first and foremost about the most vulnerable who are already being so hurt by abortion restrictions and, you know, incarceration and different regula regulations on bodily autonomy? Uh, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think, you know, one of the, one of the outcomes of the many conversations around racial justice and confronting white supremacy, you know, that, that we had in the summer of 2020, one of the results was, I think we saw some changes in some of the mainstream reproductive rights organizations. Now, I don't know about internally, right? I mean, that's, um, you know, uh, but in terms of leadership, in terms of who's at the, the top of these organizations, so that it becomes a lot more difficult to say these white-led reproductive rights organizations, because that's not so much, um, that's not so much what's, what's, uh, what we see now. Um, right. You know, I think I think we'll have to see what happens. You know, one thing that I'm hearing a lot um, as I just make some calls today is this real concern around uh, criminalization. Right. So um, this idea that, well, who who will be if, if abortion is, is illegal, who's going to be prosecuted, who's going to be arrested, who's going to be uh, detained. And I think, um, you know, as with most things, if you look back at you know, the, the so-called war, war on drugs, for example, when you have any kind of illegal activity, where does the policing, where does the prosecution focus? It focuses on communities of color, regardless of who's engaging in the, in the, the you know, the illegal act. And so, um, you know, as I was talking to Sister Song Executive Director Monica Simpson earlier, she's saying, that's really what's new here. And that's really kind of what adds uh, a new and scary layer is um, who, what, how, how do we protect people? How do we, um, you know, if, if people are crossing state lines to get access to an abortion, for example, is it going to be the white woman who stopped uh, and questioned about her intentions in crossing state lines? Um, or is it going to be the black woman? Um, and so she talked a lot about the, the need for, you know, um, bail funds, right? How, how do we put money aside um, how her, her, you know, people who are, um, who she's connected to through organizing, how do they start to mobilize legal support to get bail funds together? Um, 
and and also to you know put pressure on uh, prosecutors, on district attorneys to say, please don't you know don't um, enforce these laws. So I think that's going to be a question for some of these mainstream, the larger reproductive rights organizations. Do they mobilize around these more specific issues? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yes, um, crucially, and. Um, I'm just being slightly aware of time. I, I, you know, presumed we'd go a little bit over, but I do want to turn to you, Haley. Thank you for your patience while we've been discussing this. Uh, but I think, you know, uh, to, to continue uh, what has already been mentioned, which when we talk about uh, self-determination and uh, solidarity and, and the collective work required here, and indeed legal gray areas, you write a lot about self-managed abortions, and this is a lot of research you've done and advocacy you've done, um, and you describe it as as a legal gray area. Um, and so I was wondering, uh, maybe just as basically as, can you explain what what you what you mean when you say self-managed abortions? What are they? And when you call them a legal gray area, what does that sort of mean? And what does that mean now, especially after today, if there's been changes because of today? Yeah, absolutely. And that actually Danny's um, points about criminalization hold super, super true in self-managed in the self-managed abortion space as well. And so self-managed abortion means you are self-sourcing abortion pills to use them without um, clinician supervision. And so there are different ways that people self-source the medications. Um, often, I think we most often hear about folks purchasing them online. Um, but there are also um, other ways that folks obtain them, such as, um, you know, they are sold, misoprostol is sold over the counter in Mexico. Um, and there um, is a lot of really amazing work being done by Mexican feminists um, through their accompaniment model where um, they are sharing pills person to person. Um, so there are a lot of different ways that folks are getting um, the medications. But basically, self-managed abortion with pills is a safe way that people can end an early pregnancy. Um, and a lot of people confuse it with telehealth abortion. And they're actually two very, very different things. But I understand why people confuse them. Because like I said, often folks who do self-managed abortions, they will order the pills online and then they're mailed to their house. And then what we know about telehealth abortion is that folks are meeting with a clinician online and then having the pills mailed to their house. So it makes sense why people are confusing the two, um, but they do have really, really different sort of legal statuses, right? So um, again, telehealth abortion is when you are, um, it can be through video, it can be through just an audio call, it can be through chat or even sometimes like asynchronously asynchronously through a form where folks are chatting with a licensed clinician who's based in the U.S. um, and they're getting abortion medications through that route and it's mailed to their home. And so that's what telehealth abortion um, is. And it differs from self-managed abortion, again, because people are self-sourcing those pills and using them without clinician supervision or support. Um, And so the legal difference there is that um, telehealth abortion happens through the formal healthcare system. So it's very easily regulated by the states, right? Mm -hmm. So any state that bans abortion, the 26 states we anticipate are going to ban abortion, will also ban telehealth abortion. um, And telehealth abortion is already um, prohibited in 19 states before Roe fell. Um, So that is already quite regulated. 
Um, with self-managed abortion, there are currently only three states that explicitly ban self-managed abortion, which again is you finding the pills yourself, taking them yourself, managing it yourself. Um, so a clinician is not involved. So it is a lot harder to regulate. Um, but the landscape is, is very gray and kind of difficult to make sense of because we have these three states that explicitly ban self-managed abortion. But then the, the legal experts at If When How have found that there are also about 20 other states that have laws on the books like fetal harm laws or sort of these old pre-row criminal abortion bans that could be used to criminalize people. So it's not necessarily illegal, but there is the potential for criminalization. And that has happened. You know, we there have been at least 22 um, people who have been arrested for self-managed abortion. So it does really, again, exist in that sort of legal gray area because it is not explicitly illegal in the vast majority of states, but there is this big criminalization risk especially for black and brown folks who are already surveilled and targeted by police. Justice Danny was talking about, you know, they already have been historically followed and surveilled by the state um, along various means. And so there we expect them to also be targeted um, for criminalization through this route. And that's already the case with things um, where outcomes of pregnancy are criminalized, that already um, happens most often with black and brown folks. They are most often reported to police um, for things like stillbirths or miscarriages. Um, So that is really what we anticipate seeing happen with the criminalization piece as well. Absolutely. And we already see the kind of, you know, Christian fascist agenda of uh, eager, zealous prosecutors even before Roe, in the case of Lizelle Herrera, arresting her for murder, even though there wasn't even a statute on the statute on the books uh, for a for an a, for an abortion, and so uh, yeah, it's the 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 fervency with which I it seems like law enforcement will will be wanting to act on these criminalizations and surveil even harder uh, seems seems pretty imminent. So when you're working in these arenas um, and with people all around the country, what kind of thing do you think is worth having in mind in terms of collective safety and personal safety and the kind of things that maybe in the past already you're seeing prosecutors prosecutors use or attempt to use in terms of like digital evidence um, and tracking of, of calls and things like that in terms of what, what kind of best practices uh, or, or places people should look in terms of uh, learning more about safety and best practices, and, and keep you know we keep, we keep us safe, um, not uh, not falling into uh, yeah or putting other people at risk. I think is also crucial too. Yeah, I think the biggest thing that is really helpful for folks to know is that inducing an abortion with um, pills is not medically distinguishable from a spontaneous miscarriage. And unfortunately, folks have, again, also been criminalized for miscarriages. So this does not eliminate that risk. Um, But it can be a harm reduction tool that folks know that, you know, there's no way for a physician or clinician, if you access, you know, formal healthcare, to tell that you had a medication abortion unless you disclose it to them or, um, we uh, folks do often 
remind people to use the pills in their cheeks instead of inserting them vaginally because you can find sort of the remnants of the pills um, if someone did a pelvic exam. But otherwise, there's no way to tell. There's no blood test. It doesn't look differently. Um, And that is how most people have been reported to police. Most of the people who have been arrested for self-managed abortion, including Lizelle Herrera, um, were, were reported by a healthcare provider. And so while I, you know, we, I think we all wish that we lived in a world where you could be honest with your healthcare provider and disclose your health information to your healthcare provider. That's not the reality for a lot of people who have histories of being criminalized again, like black and brown folks who have been, you know, targeted by white supremacy in the medical system and in the incarceration system. Um, so it, it is important for folks to know that they do not have to disclose that information. The treatment, if they had a complication, which complications are extremely rare, but again, not impossible. Um, the complication treatment would be the same. The presentation is the same. Um, so it doesn't interfere with your health care to not disclose that information. Um, and in fact, puts you at a greater legal risk. And I think it's important to also say that, you know, I absolutely do not blame the people. It is not their fault for people who did disclose and then were criminalized is that's a normal human thing to do. The system is what criminalized them. So I think it's really important to also grasp that piece that the people who've been criminalized are not at fault for that. Um, some other things um, folks can do. Um, Plan C is a really good place to go um, just to learn more about self-managed abortion in general. They also have a lot of really great resources on where folks get safe abortion pills. Um, They have done, you know, some chemical analyses of the abortion pills and made sure that they actually contain the medications they're supposed to contain um, and have sort of a report card on sources for abortion pills um, that usually um, come from overseas, but not always. There are some U.S. sources as well. Um, so they're a really, really good resource. Um, I definitely like to point people there. Um, the Digital Defense Fund has a really excellent um, abortion digital privacy guide that I like to send folks toward because, um, you know, digital um, security is definitely not my expertise area, but mm-hmm. there are a lot of steps folks can take, like um, using specific browsers or, you know, using um just these sort of best practices for digital security that help minimize your digital footprint, because that has also been used as evidence um, against folks who've been arrested for self-managed abortion. Their Google search history has been used. Their text messages have been used. Um, So there are different things that folks can do. Um, So I would definitely recommend checking out that digital defense fund guide. Um, And, Yes, on the um, the Plan C pills, it's plancpills.org is um, where you can go to really, they really have a really broad um, number of resources for folks to learn more about what self-managed abortion is and how folks do it safely. Um, but it is also important to remember that that legal risk is there. I sort of like to frame it as it's extremely medically safe. Um, to self-manage an abortion with pills, but there is a legal risk, particularly for communities that have been historically criminalized um, and targeted by white supremacist policing. Um, so that is is really important to keep in there as well. Absolutely, yeah. And just to say that that uh, 
website again it's plan c pills all one word dot org um seems like a really really crucial resource and then for just my final question because i know we're 10 minutes over what we said we'd be i wanted to ask uh you danny in turn where would you like to see focus and resources go at this moment where you know maybe people who weren't ar- like activated in the many years building up to this moment might be um where would you want to see aid support solidarity resources be focused and are there any uh recommendations you personally have or or general uh points of recommendation well i think you know as always abortion funds are incredibly important um and i think making sure that we understand what abortion funds actually do and provide beyond just making the resource beyond just making like the financial resources available to those who need it but also that critical work of, you know, someone, I live in Ohio, for example, and, you know, we, we have, um, abortion is legal in Ohio as of today. And the, the two trigger bans uh, that are moving through the legislature have not, you know, passed yet. Um, but I think a lot about what it's going to mean for people to have to, people in the Midwest and the South to have to get, you know, to Illinois or to the coast um, in order to uh, get abortions. And I think, uh, you know, these abortion funds, as always, have been the places that um, not only get the money together, but help people think about uh, where they're going to stay and um, who's going to take care of their children while they're traveling or, you know, how to um, communicate with their employer that they're going to be gone. So I think this is just something that's come up again and again as I've talked to people is the mutual aid, right? If we, if you can't, if you can't rely on these institutions, on the courts, on the government to provide, um, you know, to secure our right, then people have to do it for themselves. And I think it's a good reminder that we really need to know historically what mutual aid has looked like um, in our various communities. And, um, and I mentioned like bail, you know, bail funds earlier when I was speaking with Monica Simpson, she was saying like, we need to make sure that um, in the same way that, you know, different racial justice organizations did have done a mama's day bailout in the past, getting moms out of uh, jail on mother's day, you know, we're going to have to make sure that these bail funds are funded um, to uh, make sure that people aren't sitting in jail um, languishing away from their families because they've been, they're being brought up on some, you know, bogus charge about, you know, their reproductive decision-making. Um, so I think it's just a good time to kind of, uh, you know, think a lot about, um, about these issues. I haven't gotten a chance to look at it yet because I think it just came out today, but the national national advocates for pregnant women just put out a whole, um, toolkit on criminalization. That's for, um, healthcare providers, uh, lawmakers, um, I, I think prosecutors, uh, child welfare workers, right? So that um, the so that they know how not to, you know, put people in harm's way um, and to resist um, how they can work to resist. And uh, and that organization name again is the National National Advocates for Pregnant Women. Again, I have it. It just came out this morning. I haven't gotten a chance to read it yet, but they 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 have a toolkit that they just put out. Excellent. Um, Thank you. That seems really important and crucial. Uh, Well, I uh, want to thank you both and and also emphasize and thank Danny for, uh, you know, uh, stressing the importance of thinking about robust uh, reproductive justice as uh, an anti-racist, anti-fascist, abolitionist struggle uh, that should uh, contain all those uh, intersecting 
uh, sites of, of, of anti-white supremacist work um, and feminist work and uh, LGBTQ plus work. Um, thank you so much, Danny and Haley, for your work and for joining me on this difficult day. Um, and thank you for anyone who tuned in and watched. I hope it was helpful and useful and uh, the fight goes on. So thank you all so much. That was The Intercept's Natasha Leonard, Professor Rachel Rebouchet, author of the report The New Abortion Battleground, Danny McLean, Puffin Fellow at Type Media Center and author of We Live for the We, The Political Power of Black Motherhood, and Haley McMahon, an abortion access researcher and doctoral student at Emory University. And that's it for this special edition of Intercepted. Field reporting by Washington editor Nausicaa Renner, Live stream produced by Travis Mannon and Lauren Feeney. Episode produced by me, Laura Flynn. Until next time. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.